0: welcome to the Zolly podcast with Maggie
1: and Hansini, where we have thought-provoking conversations about journeys, life, and much more. Catch our latest episodes every Monday.
0: Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to another podcast episode of the Zolly Mumsel podcast. Uh, today we welcome Priyanka Samantha, another guest, and she'll be sharing her story about the truths about European adoption and her experiences and we'll be uh, asking her some questions and she'll be telling us her experience so um, if you'd like to give us a bit of background about yourself and welcome to the Zoli Mumzal podcast first and
2: foremost. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, I have been looking forward to sharing my story on this podcast but It's always nerve-wracking because I feel like I represent the people back home whenever I share my story and I share this perspective. So just bear with me.
0: No, no, don't worry. This is exactly why we sort of wanted to do a podcast sort of series so people feel comfortable and they don't really have to worry about, you know, being exactly like on point with what they're saying. They can just Mm. generally just share the story. So don't worry.
2: So a bit background information about me is that uh, I was adopted to Norway wh- from Sri Lanka when I was seven weeks old, and my adopted parents was in a process of three years to uh, analyze the adoption before they had me. But then when when I started to speak and realized that I was adopted around three years old then I started having all these questions about my own adoption story and it turned out to be a journey for our family that they never expected to take such place in our family household as it did and my life has been affected by those conversations and the lack of peace that i had growing up Mm -hmm. i was will say so now till this day i still have the same conversations with people and adoption has turned out to be a huge part of my life i used to be working as a clothing designer but Mm -hmm. now i work as a writer and researcher in the adoption structure and industry instead okay and then Um, i'm a mother of two and Recently got divorced, so life has been hectic lately. I will say, I
1: have to say, you look very young, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, like very good for your age, as in, not for your age, but like you just look really good. <laughs> Thank you. Um. Okay, so it's really interesting story, a really interesting start, I would say. Um, how, like, when did you, so you said you mentioned, like, you were around three when you first kind of got the hint of, you know, okay, you were adopted,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but how do you bring up that conversation with your parents, or how did you, was it, you know, what, what's that experience like? So I grew up in a
2: very open household. They always welcome the uncomfortable situations and conversations, and, um, There was this time in kindergarten when I sat down waiting for my mother to arrive. And then I remember that feeling of everyone having their mother coming to pick them up. And then I looked at my adoptive mother and I was like, there's something odd about this situation. It doesn't feel normal because everyone is staring at us. And I remember I told my mother in the car that day that I felt a bit weird. And then that day, I remember they sat down with me and had a conversation. And we have been speaking about this loads of times that they sat down with me and my brother, adopted brother, who was four years older than me. So he was seven um, by then. And he already knew that he was adopted because they already had that conversation with him. And it was pretty obvious for him because he's, he's, um, he's darker than me. So everyone has been pointing it out from the beginning with him, but mm-hmm. I could have been a mixed race. So not everyone was um, pointing it out in the beginning with me. Cause I don't even think they knew at that point that I was adopted. And it was a new thing in the nineties to adopt to our small town because we were one of the first um, dark skinned people in town as well. So after we had that conversation we started having it more often and I just felt strange uh, every time I was with them everywhere because I always felt like something was odd and it was elephants in the room that no one was addressing Mm -hmm. so I wanted to have that conversation pretty often I will say (laughs) like weekly
1: (laughs) just just to clarify are both your parents Norwegian and are they like from the conversation are they both uh, people of color or no yeah so
2: our family tree well uh, their family tree in Norway is that my adoptive mother is white Norwegian and she's from a small town Mm -hmm. um she has a very educated family uh pretty cool people calm and they were always traveling and open for culture and new thoughts and perspectives mm-hmm. while my father's side he's also white Norwegian mm-hmm. he was also from a very small town but they were a fisherman family and they were pretty close-minded people and had some interesting words and behaviors up along the years that um, would have been okay today but they were not Uh, only ignorant they were just naive Mm. so I will say that that side of the family has been struggling a a lot with racism and uh, just discriminating people of color Mm.
0: pretty hard yeah so what was it like sort of growing up as one of the first people of color in the west coast of Norway what was that experience like
2: what was interesting about being one of the first people of color in Norway in that area is that everyone was having this urge to tell me that there was nothing different between me and them. Okay. And then in the next situation, they will be standing there saying racist slurs or treating me differently. So I remember there was this group picture that me and my girls always took in uh, school and all the blonde girls were allowed to be in it and then they they were just like pressing out people of color from being in that picture because they were always telling us like it just don't don't fit the frame and it just don't fit the frame and it's not what we want to have in the picture and then i realized over the years that it was a lot of racism that was hidden as well because We got used to being called Negro or treated differently or I had my face washed in the toilet weekly. So it was just a lot of heavy stuff going on. But then it was also this behavior that I couldn't address. But I always felt like their parents treated me differently and people will speak to me differently. But I just didn't understand why. And how I could point it out. So I will always come back home and tell my parents about it. But then they were always telling me to just ignore it. And I started ignoring it until I got too heavy. Mm-hmm.
0: So then what were the things that you did to sort of deal with it
2: head on? Uh, I started to skip school. So I wasn't in school for three years during primary school because it was too heavy to go to school and I didn't tell anyone until seventh grade when I remember we had a school meeting and my teacher (laughs) was telling my parents that he missed me and they were like why do you see her every day and it's so nice that you take such good care of her And then he was like, yeah, but I'm so sorry to hear about her ill condition because I had faked an ill condition for three years. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) And I told him that uh, I had to go through these weekly operations (laughs) so I couldn't come to school. And (sighs) then I also told him that I had my period and my period could last for a month. So while everyone was at work, I used to sleep under this tree. And then when they went to work, I used to go back inside the house and hide. When I heard they came home and pretended that I was earlier from school because our teacher was so kind. So oh. it was pretty hard and lonely for a while. And the few times that I actually went to school, uh, my brother had to defend me and his friends also. So uh, I will say that it's very different from the racism perspective that we face today because now everyone is aware that it's going on and people choose to ignore it. But by that time, I just didn't understand what was going on. Yeah, just felt like people were treating me differently, but I couldn't point it out. And I wasn't aware of racism being a structural issue and had no idea that I was facing sh- such uh, problematic behavior. So when when you say, um,
1: you know, your older brother, like defending you, d- do you think he handled it differently or um, as in like, d- does he have similar experience
2: as well? Uh, so my older brother had worse experiences than me, but because he was always beating up people for it, then, um, people, stopped with it and he was also very good at football so Mm -hmm. he was more respected i think because i was light-skinned and no one could really put me in a category because i was not his biological sister neither but he could be um, seen as a tamil in town because The area that we were living in was an area where a lot of Tamil people came to town by then. But because my brother looked like a Tamil, he was welcomed into that community as well. But we were Sinhalese people. And obviously during the war, Sinhalese people have been horrific with Tamils. So most of the Tamils that came to town didn't want to welcome me into that group neither. And then they could look at me and see that I was singalese but they couldn't see that i was full singalese neither because i'm african kafir as well which is um slaves from africa taken by the colonizers to sri lanka so i think my brother found his uh, how can i say it he found his i think my brother f- sort of found his group of friends and click easier than me because he was darker and he was respected because of his football skills while I struggled to fit in because no one could put me in a box. So of when did you start sort of get getting
0: out of the box I guess and sort of finding people or do you still struggle to find
2: um, to I with? think I started to find more peace in eighth grade when we started these new schools Uh, because we were done with primary school. And by that time, I was dancing a lot and found my group of friends and just felt more comfortable because people didn't force me to be in situations where I had to laugh of racist jokes. I think that was the thing that made me uh, uncomfortable because... uh, I always felt like their jokes and humor was different from mine and their music taste and just life in general was Mm -hmm. so different from my interest. And I was trying to be this white girl all the time and force myself to have the same interest as them and use the same makeup, but it was my shades and it just didn't fit me well. So I think for a long period, I was very... Um, nervous about being myself but then I was also welcomed into the dance community and it was just easier to be me and admit that I was listening to Tupac I was analyzing lyrics uh it was Alicia Keys that I looked up to it wasn't Britney <laughs> it was just <laughs> different <laughs> for me to admit it and just be full in myself and I think by the time when I heard about different movies with black actors because it it was very hard for me in my small town to find the videotapes that everyone in the capital of Norway has been watching then I started realizing that I wasn't alone so I can still remember the first time I saw a person of color on television in Norway and my parents was telling me like oh come and see this guy he looks like you (laughs) <laughs> uh and it's just been a lot of awkward moments being raised by white people even though they have been amazing they have been extremely naive and it has affected me differently over the years i will say that a lot of their behavior has been pr- problematic because they haven't been aware of how it, af- it has affected me
1: so w- when you talk to you know other um I'm guessing when you talk to, you know, other adoptive kids Mm -hmm. um, through your projects, do you find that they have similar experiences as well?
2: Like it's a general... It's actually pretty interesting because I have interviewed over 500 adoptees in Norway Mm -hmm. and all over and now assisted over 250 adoptees in reunions, which is not the same adoptees as the people I've interviewed. And my experiences are very unique Mm -hmm. because most of them have been aware of them being different and felt like something was odd, but they have been more into embracing their white personality by being assimilated over the years by their family members. While I refused to fit into that box, so every time they were trying to put me into the box, I just forced them to not do it and it was so uncomfortable that people chose to not hang out with me at one point because I will always just state out that I was different from them and just make a scene about it so I think I felt very long because of that as well that I was the youngest one in my town and now in general in Norway that have been wishing to be reunited And people haven't been so aware of their adoption and how it has affected them as I have been. So I think most of the conversations that I used to grow up with is pretty rare. And when I speak with adoptees now, they haven't been always in uh, environments where the conversations has been welcomed, even... Adoptees that I speak with in their forties now are telling me that their adoptive parents who refused to speak about their adoption and answer the questions they had, Well, my adoptive parents have done an amazing job speaking with us. And mm. I think I was allowed to be Priyangika. So when I refused to go under the name that I was given by my white parents to be assimilated into a white system, then they understood. And they allowed it to happen. So by the age of 18, I changed my name, but I had been using my Sri Lankan name for a long time before then. And I was always confronted because obviously my signatures were fake because it wasn't my legal name. So everyone was always Mm -hmm. telling me, like, you cannot sign your papers with this name because you're not registered by this name but my parents was always welcoming me to use it so i think i've been pretty lucky um when i speak with other additives and i can see how it affects them to think that they will have to choose one side over the other now that most of them speak with me and they choose their white side because they know their white side but embracing their African or Desi culture is so uncomfortable because they don't know anything about it and it's hard for them to adapt to their culture. But I think because I always wanted to be around people of color and always long to be around people of color and read about people of color. that um, I think it's been easier for me to just not embrace my identity as an adoptee, but just as a person of color instead.
1: Hmm that's really, really interesting, interesting. yeah <laughs> because yeah it's, it's really complex
0: yeah because like you said you've had one experience but other people haven't had the same experience and I guess it's something that carries I'm guessing that sort of still affects them today yeah. especially if they're in their 40s like that's like decades of not dealing with something and part of yourself. And the problem
2: is that the media portrayed as if you have to choose a side. So yeah. most of the adoptees that I speak with look in the mirror and they see a dark person, but they feel like it's more of a shell than it's their identity. But mm. when I look in the mirror and I see myself, I see my ancestors and I see the culture and I see the years of slavery and the colonization time that my family has been affected by so I think it's easier for me to be more interested into my background and culture but for them I feel like they are more in a gap between two worlds Mm. while I refuse to be put in a gap now between being a white person and a person of color because I was never meant to be white. So when
1: as an the experiences that you've had when you were in primary school or secondary school or just generally growing up, yeah. does that take a toll? I mean, I'm sure it does take a toll, but how heavy is it to deal with the older you get? Do you find that it becomes easier to accept these experiences or does it, was it one of those things where it's like, you know, you, it's just a constant process of dealing and healing with, from all those experiences?
2: I think I, I, thought I was healed until the BLM movement that happened this year. Mm-hmm. Then it was affecting me in a different way than I've seen before. Uh, writing has been helping me a lot to process my feelings and experiences. But then I have also learned a lot about the colonization time and the pre uh, post-colonization time. So it's not weird for me that people are being racist.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's not
2: weird for me that they're not... Uh, used to pronouncing their our names but what sort of gave me peace is just like uh, thinking about the fact that a black guy can be called John Smith and embracing it because it was gave given to his family by slave masters and that's why I refuse to be put into that white category and identity now. And by embracing my Desi culture and African culture and personality, I think I sort of found peace with realizing that, okay, I've been raised in a white system by white people in a white town. Of course, I experienced racism because I was never meant to be here in the beginning with. So... I look less on the system now and trying to force them to change. I just create a safe space for me and my friends and people I care about. And I will just live um, beside them and welcome them to join us. But I'm not going to be shooting bullets anymore. I just want to create the bridge and create a safe, a safe space for people to learn about their history. Even white people to just learn about slavery from the books that they should be reading and not what they are taught in this educational system. So I just want to create a better place than to expect our society to do it for me because racism happens. And unfortunately I have had experiences with my half African, well, my son has an African background as well. And he has had his experiences and he's eight years old. And I wish the school system was different, but just teaching him to embrace his culture and embrace his personality instead of him trying to fit into a white system has helped me a lot with my healing process because I no longer look for acceptance. I have accepted myself.
1: Yeah, I was literally going to ask about your parenting in terms of like, 'Cause you know how we're taught something in school, but yeah. because of, you know, the knowledge that you have, mm-hmm. I feel like your your parenting at home is very different to what you know the school is teaching. Because I feel Definitely. like I mean, I think it's with all of us, like his like what we're taught in history is is very is a small lens of what you know the yeah. yeah. picture is.
0: Yeah. And as we grow, so, we sort of we can see what we were taught was mm-hmm. not not what we should be taught basically
2: exactly and that their resources for teaching us this should be criticized because well the first book that i uh, was reading in second grade was Anne frank's diary and i remember that my mother was um, my adopted mother was encouraging me to look into uh, her story because she always felt like we were a bit of the same person of looking at the world differently when asking the uncomfortable questions. So so she always wanted me to have role models where my personality was um, welcomed and embraced. But then I grew up with uh, missing role models that was giving me the reflection of myself so now, when I parent, I want him to see himself, and I want him to feel comfortable in his own skin. Yeah, which is why I read books for him uh, with Maya Angelou and mm-hmm. other African role models and Desi role models that most people don't look at. Everyone look at Martin Luther King, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I want to teach my son about the people that brown history month um uh, brown history page and black history month uh, is welcoming forward and all the small stories that we haven't heard of the people that was living in hidden areas in pakistan and doing an amazing job to help people during the war and i want him to know all these characters that we leave out of our history books mm-hmm. Because he is taught about this white history man um, at school and I'm not having it. <laughs> they yeah. not, they're not his role models. Yeah. No,
0: Have you, has it been hard to do the research into that or is like, is the information available? It's just a case of researching and reading.
2: Yeah, I think it's all about being willing to do the research which is something that parents and we as people uh, find very hard sometimes but i do think that putting up a research list and resources list will be necessary for people to teach it the, teach their children and that's what i'm looking into i want to make it more available and just make people aware of it because if it's available then people will actually teach their children but i feel like history is repeating itself because people are lazy yeah yeah
0: i think that, that's what it comes down to no um,
1: no that i i totally understand because you know when you were mentioning about the blm movement um yeah. around that time i was trying to find resources for my little sister who's also 8 to try to explain mm-hmm. this to her because i feel like when something like this is going on, it has to be taught the right way. And you don't want to, you don't want to say the wrong thing or give, you know, your yeah. perspective. It's, it's such a, um, I would say it's such a sensitive topic to teach, but yeah. looking for resources is so difficult, especially if like, for example, like we're not black. So I don't want to say the wrong thing of yeah. like, you know, from, from someone else's community or, you know, so yeah. I think you are right. Like it, teaching kids, At such a young age is so important, but it's like we really need to put in more resources into having them available and available to everyone to teach because I I read this quote somewhere. It's like, you know, the black person like the black kid is being taught and is having to experience this. So everyone, Mm -hmm. like you know, every child should be able to learn about racism at such a young age. It's not it's not a thing of oh, you need to, it's you know, it's like an adult topic. It's
2: not, it should be ingrained from when they're really young. Yeah. Exactly. And I do think that people are so concerned about yeah. not traumatizing their own child that they're traumatizing other kids. A- yeah. So they are um not doing them any favor by leaving the history books out because most of the kids that I'm surrounded by do not know about black or brown history, which I find very problematic because they're only taught white history from a white perspective. And mm-hmm. then they grow up and they realize that the world is is different and As my brother um, said during the uh, dinner table one time, um, as my brother sat around the dinner table one time, he looked at my father and he was always saying that, I see the world through your eyes. I don't see it through my own eyes. So now I have to find out myself. But then I felt like it was too lazy to look into it. While my parents know that, I have never seen the world through anyone else's eyes because I made them open their eyes and realize that they were forcing me to be someone I was not meant to be. Mm-hmm. So it's more easier for me to have this interest in to looking into history books and whatever. But I refuse to learn more about white history. Whenever people are asking me about years in history, white history, or Stuff that happened, I probably don't know because even during school, I just didn't have interest for it, which is why my teacher started to uh, give me history books with brown history because he realized that I was not having it. So I think it's a lot easier for children to learn about the subject that is relevant for them which is why I want my son to make it re- to, which is why I want to make it relevant for my son. Yeah. And now he is more interested in it because we have spoken about the colonization time in Sri Lanka and by being honest with him about the colonization period, he realizes what British people have been doing to Sri Lanka and people from Netherlands. So, um the white hate that I might create in him hasn't because hasn't been because I have been in his face saying that white people are awful. It's because he actually knows the history. Mm. Yeah, I really admire sort of your... Um... Well, I do get a lot of um, criticism on raising my children this way. So <laughs> not everyone is too fan of it. Well, no, I think
1: like, honestly from being brought up like when I moved into England my the first like the first things my dad said to me was you're this color so you will always have to work twice as hard and if at that age you're being taught that or you know loads of other kids are experiencing racism at a much younger age or worse experiences yeah then I think educating kids it's 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 kind of like you kind of have to like it's your responsibility e- exactly. really.
0: yeah and you're not being lazy by not teaching you're being
2: really proactive actually yeah and it's he's going to learn about it anyway so it's better that he is able to ask the questions than for him to realize that yeah it's all about the safe space and I do think that people are criticizing it because they haven't been able to have the safe safe space and I do say a lot of Uh, stuff at home that people shouldn't quote me at because I do have white hate sometimes and I have to deal with it all the time because I don't look at my friends um, through those eyes but I do think that they benefit from a lot of stuff through history that they're not acknowledging which is making me angry like whenever they repost a post about police brutality or racism in Norway or whatever and then they go back to their own lives and live a peaceful life and I know that my son might go to school and experience racism and they're not having the conversation with their children about race Mm -hmm. and it does make me pissed off I have been sitting down with white parents and addressing it multiple times but They're also naive and they're also part of a system and been educated in a white system. So taking my hate out of them don't make anything less relevant, but it just it's hurtful that our children have to face such uh, problematic behavior and their children can live in a safe world.
1: From our previous conversations and from your piece that you wrote on Zeddy Mamzil, you mentioned that at 20, you assisted around over 100 reunions. What was that like? And did you want to give up at any point? And what was that journey like to kind of even do the first one?
2: So uh, when I was 13, I received a letter from a biological mother who was looking for her daughter uh, that had been kidnapped from Sri Lanka during the 1890s and at that that point well at that point I hadn't found my own mother yet which took me 12 years so when I was 18 20 I was still not reunited with my own mother and I think that was the hardest part by assisting reunions because I found the biological parents of so many people and their children as well, while I couldn't find my own family. So I think it was emotionally hard for me to not make it personal and to witness their struggle and process and not being able to process it with my own people. And I always felt like I was uh, in the wrong place. So that peace that I had within was growing as I saw that other people found peace, even though reunions are extremely hard. And I don't really necessarily uh, recommend it to everyone because sometimes it's better with an update later, a letter and DNA test and find out the family tree than to actually be reunited and have contact. But I think a lot of the wounds that I was facing as a child and that I grew up with was um, more um, how can I say it I think the wounds that I grew up with as a child and facing as an adult was more visible for me because I had to assist other people and I saw that they were healing and I just felt like the healing process was um, unavailable for me because I was healing and facing my own thoughts and thought pattern but it was a part of me that I just couldn't deal with because I hadn't been reunited yet
1: so when you were doing these um when you were reuniting parents with their kids was it something that just kind of came to you through that first letter or was it something that you actively wanted to do from an early age or you know be part of this kind of I don't I, I wouldn't Adoptive process, I
2: guess? or No, I don't think I necessarily wanted to assist adoptees or biological parents to find their children. But I do think that uh, by the first uh, reunifications that I assisted, that I was aware of the process and the system, which made me feel like I didn't have a choice. I just felt like I owed it to them to a system because it was pretty easy for me to reunite children and biological parents because I did understand the system very early on because my parents assisted me, which mm. they're not allowed to. Um, so they explained me the whole system and they explained me everything. And then by me being que- uh, curious, I started to reach out to others at... <laughs> school the, uh, at the library school and researchers from facebook and google and then i started to understand the system more and as i realized that i understood the system i realized that the way people were trying to be reunited was wrong because people were reuniting adoptees and biological parents based on the papers but the papers were false most of the time mm-hmm. so i did understand Uh, by that age that we needed to take a DNA test and we needed to uh, do it in a way that was more hidden and less spoken of as the reunification programs that it was on television so it was just a natural process that grew organically because people were reaching out to me and the word spreaded after the first reunion story and then people started reaching out to me so I never Reached out to people until after twenty. Uh, after I was twenty, and I was a part of all these groups, because I do find it very disturbing that adoptees are taken advantage of. Mm. A lot of travel guides and private people are charging adoptees five hundred dollars per day to assist them on reunification processes. While well, I have done it for free until now. I still do it for free, but I have been thinking lately that I need to start charging a little amount to do this because I have spent money on 250 out of reunion processes that might uh, affect me soon. I think I could have saved a lot more money that, uh I have done, but it it was important for me that this is not a business and... feel like it's a genuine decision from my side and not because i want to earn money on it but charging them the cost that it actually costs to find the papers might be necessary to start doing in this year and the years to come Mm. um so when you eventually got the message
1: that they you know they found your mother how after assisting loads of people how did that feel for you and what was that experience like
2: I think it was very odd for me because it happened so quickly and I had been searching for my mother for 12 years then I reached out to this group of men in Sri Lanka by the beginning of November and that year and In 13 days, they were able to find my mother. So I had spent 12 years and they were able to find her in 13 days. So at the beginning, I felt like it was a scam. Mm. But then they started to take me through the process and they always had me on the phone and FaceTime while they were researching the story. But then when they realized that I have a very ugly story, a personal story that is extremely ugly, then they started to hide information from me. which Made me furious because I've always felt like I was uh, able to process this because I had been assisting adoptees and I had been aware of this since I was seven and tried to find my mother, but they were hiding this information to protect me, which is something that I think people should stop with with adoptees. If they get to know the adoptee, they should know how much the adoptee is able to process. And I think This is why one of the first questions that I ask adoptees that I assist is if they have a therapist they can process this with. And I also don't help them unless they are able to go to therapy Mm -hmm. because it's important to not leave them with the wounds and healing process, which is a very long journey most of the time. But all of this comes down to a white system. It's hard for people of color to find a therapist. I don't understand them, especially when it comes to adoption. So for me to be in that situation that I was in with being reunited with my mother, I think all of these questions that I had been trying to hold away from my own thoughts uh, for a long time came up and it was extremely traumatizing because she was traumatized and she needed me to be strong and i never thought that we will be in that position because i wanted that desi mother an african mother that everyone is speaking of i wanted that love and the warm welcome that everyone are telling me about in a household of people of color but then i found this lady that was sleeping at the bus station traumatized didn't have food and had been experiencing a white system that took advantage of her poor situation. So I do think that my reunification process was more traumatizing than I expected it to be. But then my grandmother passed away two days later when I was reunited, which affected our whole family and they thought that I was taking over the throne because my grandmother had been speaking of me for the years that I was gone. And she always said that when Priyankika is coming back, she's the one in charge of the family. (laughs) So when I came back, everyone was leaning on me. And I think a Desi household where the eldest sibling is taking care of the rest was a different mentality but I had to embrace pretty quickly. And I think that was also a situation that I never expected to find myself in. So
1: when you say um, your grandmother, do you mean your biological grandmother or? Yeah, my
2: biological grandmother. Mm -hmm. And she was the only one that knew about my adoption uh, by that time because she was also fooled as well. Well, she was the one that got fooled and then she fooled my mother with it. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. she didn't know that she was promising my mother empty promises um so
0: when you say sort of forward um can you just tell us a bit about um how your mom sort of found out that they tricked her into signing papers and all the.
2: so my mother was 25 at the time she was uh, pregnant with me and she was working as a housekeeper in Sri Lanka with my father. And my father has a very heavy background from the underworld. And he has done some pretty messed up stuff that affected our family at that time. Where um, the, he had uh, committed a murder uh, years before I was born. And people were still fighting him because of it. Uh, it was a revenge murder because his wife was unfaithful to him and it was his best friend that was murdered. And this murder uh, affected my mother because of our safety. And so when my mother unwillingly got pregnant with my father, which I don't, at this point, I don't know if it's a rape, but it is sex without... consent. Okay, so. um, yeah, it's sex without concern, but it's also a uh, consent, but it's also concerning to me because it's an emotional consent because she felt like she owed him. The male power they have that, well, like the um, toxic masculinity pushed up on her where she felt like she owed him sex because... He was taking care of her, but he was not paying her for being a housekeeper. So it's just a very complicated situation. So I do consider it rape, uh, but they had an emotional relationship as well. But anyway, when my mother got pregnant and she told him and he already had two children, which is Kumara and Saman. Saman is one year older than me, and he's identical uh, (laughs) as my uh, eldest son then my father refused to take the responsibility and he told my mother that she was left up on her own to take care of this myself and that uh, he will refuse to stay in contact with her and the baby so my mother had to go back home and stay with her grandmother, uh, well my grandmother and her family and then that worked for a little bit until his wife came back and she tore apart a whole household and my mother and family lost everything because of it and my grandmother and family got so scared of the situation that they had to kick my mother out and ask her to stay somewhere else the lady that she stayed with was someone from the orphanage because someone from the orphanage had heard about the situation and saw the chance to take advantage of the situation and This process of trying to brainwash my mother into adoption started by then. So this lady was always speaking with my grandmother about she knowing a pastor that could take the baby to Europe and take care of the child for a medical record. And my grandmother didn't understand where Europe was. So she was giving her consent and going on with the process. My mother never heard about Europe. So no one mentioned Europe to her. And my mother gave birth. She refused to give me up for adoption. She went back to my father's household to have him take us in, to take care of us. But this was after my mother experienced the system in adoption, because during the 80s and 90s and 70s, um, because during the 70s, 80s and 90s, a lot of doctors and midwives stole children at the hospitals and our countries and my mother experienced that twice as well that the doctor and midwife tried to steal me twice and she got me back she went back to my father's household and asked him for um, any help and he refused to help and then she didn't see any other chance than to go to the orphanage and the lady from the orphanage took care of me with my mother for a couple of weeks. My adoptive parents came down after I was 13 days old. My mother went there when I was eight days old, and then they went on with the adoption process. But then it's an acting court where it's privately done without the probation office and the system involved. So it's a fake court where the falsified documentations with legal stamps and legal lawyers and it's a black market where everyone earns money but you don't register the adoption process so I went to Europe with my adoptive parents they had no idea but then um, it turns out that I was never adopted and my mother thought that my adoptive parents were volunteers from the Red Cross living in Sri Lanka and that she will stay in daily contact with me and come and visit so that's a, a lot of this
1: um information was this what you found out prior to meeting her or was it kind of like putting together pieces through conversations with her and research from the team that, that helped you and your own research like you know how, how much of it how, how much you- were you able to how much were you able to Ask her
2: pretty much or have conversations with her? So, the problem was that during my research process of my own story, I got in contact with this guy from Sri Lanka, well, multiple guys from Sri Lanka, which was extremely helpful and long lasting friendships. And they were always following the leads in my story and went to the orphanage, they went to the hospital, to the hometown of my mother, etc., etc and all of them came back and they said that there are some papers that is missing some of these papers we cannot find and it looks like they are falsified and I always assisted out of teas during that period of time so I knew about false d- documentations and I'd already researched a lot uh, on baby farms and acting mothers which is a uh, baby farm is a place where they used to But couples, uh, they created babies to sell them to Europe because there was not enough babies willingly given up for adoption. So they created babies instead, and then they falsified their documentation and paid women to give them up for adoption. And the women didn't understand what they were doing, and they were fooled into thinking that they for the best. But it's a very complicated thing on the black market. It's a different alternative where doctors steal babies as well from the hospital, which almost happened to me twice. And then they sell it through the mafia in the countries. But what happened in my story is that I found out that something might be odd with my papers, but I never thought of it as a false adoption. So I always thought that it might be false documentations, which sucks, but... I did have a Sri Lankan passport. I did have a Norwegian passport. I had a court documents. I, I thought everything was normal because my adoptive parents always told me that they were given a choice by paying more and then getting a faster court case. But then they wanted to do it legally, so they refused to do it. Um, so when I found out after being reunited... Uh, that something was odd with my story. And my mother kept on saying that I was supposed to be in contact with you and no one told me where you were. And when I came there for my rights and everyone told me that I had rights, they were going to give me money to build up my life so you could come back home, Priangika, then I realized that people had taken advantage of her and that she was... A victim of the system and that uh it might be more the story and then i started to speak with my mother about my father and she refused to speak about my father for a very long time so we were reunited for a couple of years before i found out the truth but it wasn't until she passed almost passed away that i sat down with her and we had had all these fights between us because she didn't want me to be in contact with anyone from my family because they abandoned her during that time. But she was obviously in contact with them now. Uh, and I told her that I had to choose my younger generation to help them out of the poverty so we could help the elder together because I could not have all of this on my shoulders. But I looked at her and I said, There is something with my story that is not correct. And you have to tell me now because I do feel like you owe me the truth. And that is a very European mindset, thinking that the elders owe us the truth of their traumas and the stuff that they have went through. When I look back, she didn't owe me anything. She could have been hiding this to her grave. and That's her choice. But by that time it worked and she told me the truth and she said that you were never meant to go to Europe. I never knew that you were going to Europe. And as a de- Desi mother, my child is the most important thing, but I just didn't feel like I could take care of you because we were poor. Because they were a middle-class family facing um, the fact that their finances had been coming to short and had to change their environment, and now she was living in the consequences of it. So she was just trying to understand, make me understand that her situation was not ideal, and she wanted to take care of me but couldn't. So when I shared with her that I was never in Sri Lanka because she was always trying to beat me because I didn't speak Sinhalese at the time, uh, mm-hmm. so when she was beating me saying like you're my daughter the first born in the family you should be speaking singola because you have been raised in sri lanka and i had to reveal to her that i was never in sri lanka and i realized that um i forced her to face a trauma that she was never ready for and she was already in a very mental ill place because of the traumas of the adoption and the sex without consent and the way society has been treating her afterwards but I feel like sometimes I should have held the truth away from her and pretended that I was in Sri Lanka because she went on a downhill by then that I think fastened up her death because the doctor also said the same that it was too much for her heart and she passed away I'm so sorry
0: to hear that and thank you for sharing because it must be difficult yeah um, most
2: of the time it's not difficult to speak about but I think right now it got a bit difficult because it was the second anniversary of her marking her that 1st of January so I think I'm in a, an emotional place now where I just miss her very much
1: yeah. So so when you were reunited with her, were you living in Sri Lanka with her for a bit then?
2: Yeah, so I went to Sri Lanka for a couple of times before I started working as a model in Sri Lanka and travelled down there very often. So I went to Sri Lanka like four or five times a year to work and to travel to see my family. But then I chose to move to Sri Lanka for a very long time and spend time with my mother and family and that's the period where i think we were bonding the most in 2015 14 15 when we were just able to spend everyday life together and she was able to take care of my son nishanta and get to know our family and i do think that it was a lot of traumatizing stuff that happened by then as well for both of us but it's also, a period that I cherish very much.
1: Mm. How? What has she ever spoken about? Like what the reunion was like for her? As as in, was she quite open with feelings, or was that something that you kind of had to
2: just figure out for yourself? She always told me because she trusted me. But she's a very strong-willed and strong-minded woman from the slum area. So her vocabulary for speaking about feelings was extremely tough Uh, and she will always state rough words instead of just speaking her heart and feelings so she will always say like I hated to see you coming down those steps because you weren't supposed to be in that situation instead of her saying that I missed you for so many years and it's been tough for me to be apart she will just switch it up on hate and We are very similar, so I knew how to handle her because she, well, I reminded myself, like, we were just, um, the way we react and express ourselves are very common. Mm. Um, But then I sat down with her one hour per day to deal with her trauma, which is something that my adoptive mother and I had read in a book helped for me. Uh, So we analyzed her mind and thoughts and the way it has affected her by just sitting there and analyzing it together so i will ask her such questions as what do you wish was different how could the system have been assisting you what did you need why did you feel like people were not hearing you uh, how could you receive love in a way that you needed love in that time, uh, time and place. And I remember when I asked her, how will you have felt love? She's told me one time that she will have felt that the system was taking care of her and feeling loved by the people that she was surrounded by if they told her the truth and her rights. And that's also the day when she told me that it will be up on my life to make justice with this system, which is why I'm doing this now. Because she looked at me and she said that there's more women like me that has been fooled, Priyangika, and I know them and I can introduce them to you, introduce you to more women. And we went to see more women and I realized that this is a very huge problem in Sri Lanka, especially because um, a lot of the adoptions that have been taking place is from Sri Lanka and India and China in South Korea, Um, but it's also a global issue. And my mother was so aware of it and she was so clever and smart in the way she was expressing it that she said it in a way that I understood that this is not only a systemic fault, this is intentional. People have been doing this with intentions. And I think that's something that has been under-communicated in the adoption industry, that People are doing this with intentions and there's a loads of money in this, which my mother knew. And when she explained to me this, I understood the system more than when my adoptive parents explained to me. Because my mother sighed from a perspective where she was living in the consequences. And I think that most of the time we need to listen to people that lives in the consequences of the system we put up to understand, to understand how the system actually works. Because... It's only the people that come the shortest that actually know how it works in practice. So when you were living with her,
1: how did she cope with having a child with like a European background?
2: Well, I think I adapted pretty quickly. I tried to put away all my European standards and live with them in the slum area, which was Mm -hmm. Horrifying at one point, because <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. they were not having a roof. And at one point we had twenty seven rats coming down to wow. our beds, and we were surrounded by rats looking like cats. So I think my standards uh, was confronted pretty fast. But then I also promised myself and the people that I was surrounded by in Sri Lanka to try to lower my standards just so I could get to know my mother's life and I think I did it for her more than I did it for me because I need to understand her life and welcome myself into their their life yeah. instead of trying to um, make the, them think of uh, Europe Europe as the answer to everything the other
1: question I had was how as an have you kept your adoptive parents separate from your biological parent, like your mom or as in as in was there an understanding between them did they meet or have you kept it quite separate
2: so the first trip that I went for my adoptive mother was supposed to come along to meet my uh, biological mother but when I look back I'm very happy that I did it alone for three weeks with my son which was terrifying but uh, my mother my adoptive mother broke her leg at that point and I went anyway. Uh, they said hi sometimes. My mother in Sri Lanka was very obsessed with my adoptive parents to say thank you to them. But then I also explained to her how my life had been in Europe and she realized that they had also been taking up on a responsibility that she realized that they were not ready for. But then... When I explain my mother about racism, for example, <laughs> she will always laugh because she also sees the value of desi people. So she was she found it very strange for people to look down upon us because we were the saviors of the world. So it was very hard for me to speak with her about politics, for example, because she She just didn't see the world this way. She was always telling me stuff like, why will they mock you for being pretty when they are white? Because she was thinking that being white is not ideal. And it was hard for me to just welcome her into my life and make her realize how my adoptive parents think because... She didn't understand that white people come with a white mentality and she never knew what a white mentality was except for being very into money and power. So when I tried to tell her that, okay, they're very into education and working and eating and sleeping (laughs) and they don't really see their family that much, she just saw the values of a white household very problematic. So she just didn't want to be too much involved because she didn't want to be affected by white mentality neither so i think that uh, separated them by her choice and not really because i wanted to but she was always so finding it very strange that they never came to sri lanka because they was all they were always saying that they will come but all of us thought that we had more time than we actually did and my adoptive parents really wanted to meet her but i don't think they will ever do that like they will never meet my biological family. I think it's too rough for up an area to, them, to bring white people to. Mm. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you
1: enjoyed our content. You can reach out to us on Instagram at zoli.mamzell and keep up to date with our latest adventures. Wishing you a wonderful day.
0: Here's to you keeping your head up and winning. Lots of love, Zoli Mamzell.